here I am, I've been given all this money. This money is no good in my hands unless I use it for good. It's, it's good for the yacht maker, I suppose, if I buy a, a $50 million yacht, but it doesn't really help anybody else. And so I think that if we all looked at it, people like me who have the means, and I do have the means um, to give away this money, I want to give it away, not just give it away, but give it away in a very intelligent manner and, and really lift people up. Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow. Hello and welcome to the Payroll Podcast. Today I am joined by billionaire Steve Sowitz, founder and chairman of Paylocity, who are listed on NASDAQ, PCTY, a leading US provider of payroll and HR solutions. In addition, Steve also serves as CEO of Blue Marble, an international payroll provider, and as director of Payescape, a UK payroll provider. He is also an international philanthropist with an interest in promoting unity, promoting universal education, and advocating for the elimination of racism, sexism, nationalism, and religious prejudice. Steve and his wife, Jessica, have a family foundation which supports over 50 worthy causes worldwide, including programs helping orphans, foster children, refugees, and many, many other people in need. He is an absolute legend in the world of payroll. He's an avid runner, a member of the Chicago Area Runners Association Hall of Fame, and a three-time winner of the MSC division of the Chicago Chase Corporate Challenge. In 2015, Steve became a member of the Baha'i Faith. A friend recommended that Steve made a film, and Steve immediately began a new career in the film industry. And we're going to find out more about that a little bit later on in the podcast. Steve lives in Hyden Park, Illinois, with his wife, two children, two dogs, and a turtle named Duchess. When he's not working or doing philanthropy, you'll often find him guiding at the Baha'i Temple in nearby Wilmette, Illinois. Listen, that's enough for me. Let's find out all about Steve Sowitz. Let's begin. Five quick questions. I'd love to kick off with a quote from your accountant. He once said to you, you've helped a couple of other people become millionaires. You might want to do it for yourself. Was it your accountant who inspired you to get into payroll? Yeah, I really didn't have any plans on getting into payroll. I stumbled into it. I, had, I was actually only fired from a job once in my life. And I was fired actually for looking for another job. I had uh, gone, I, I was unhappy with how much I was making. So I went to one of the competitors of the company I was working for. I was in my early 20s. And my, when my boss heard about it, he fired me. So I had no job and I was looking for a job. And I went to a recruiter. And he said, well, you can make this much money working for a payroll service. I had no idea what a payroll service was, and uh, I, I, but I liked the idea of making a little bit more money. I was young and ambitious. And so he, um, I went to the interview, and they hired me. And about somewhere in the interview, I figured out what a payroll service did. And I just uh, kind of accidentally found myself in this industry. Uh, what I like about the payroll industry is that it's fairly recession-proof. Like in, in, in tough times like this, you know, typically you don't see payroll services going out of business unless they're not doing very well. And so it's been a very, very good industry to stay in. I'm uh, very good with numbers. And so that's been very helpful. And, and I ended up actually becoming a programmer along the way. So it, it actually ended up hitting, uh, 
my skill sets, my natural skill sets. Uh, I'm good at sales and I'm good with programming fit the industry very well. Fantastic. And of course, in America, there'll be many people familiar with your brands, particularly Paylocity and, of course, Blue Marble, which is more of a global uh, on the global payroll side of things. But in the UK, we have Payscape, of which you are a director. Payscape have been in the news recently because they've recently acquired payrun.io as well, which is a really exciting API acquisition. I just want to find out a little bit more about why uh, the UK in particular interested you and why you decided to get involved in, uh, in investing in Payscape in the UK. Well, first of all, I'm an Anglophile. I love English accents. I'm a sucker for an English accent. Um, I love London. I love the spirit there. I love the culture there. Um, I've just always been a big fan of England. And so I, I, of course, ended up in Northern Ireland, which I also find charming. I really like the country. I found the reason why I invested in Payscape is I was looking initially when I was starting Blue Marble for a company in the UK that was kind of like a Paylocity in the UK, and I couldn't find one. And eventually I thought, well, well, if I can't find it, we'll build it. And that's what we've been doing. Actually, John and I, John Borland, for the last six years, our company's revenues have increased by a, a factor of over 10 times in those six years. And we've, we feel our best years are in front of us. I mean, we Payscape pay was very small uh, when, I, when I became John's partner, but we're doing really well right now. And with this new acquisition, we think we're ready to go to a new level. Fantastic. Well, it's certainly very exciting. And both businesses are businesses I'm very, very familiar with. Uh, I knew Stuart Hall at uh, Payone. I've known him for a number of years. And of course, we've been involved as recruiters in supporting the growth of Payscape in the UK as well. So really, really excited to see how, how that develops. Now, after going back to your first question, you mentioned that payroll is a really resilient industry and almost recession-proof. And we're seeing at the moment, amidst this COVID-19 pandemic, that actually payroll professionals have been incredibly resilient. They've continued to keep not just the UK paid, but the world paid, despite legislation changing at a rapid pace. I'm sure it's been similar in the US as it's been in the UK, but I'd love to know some of the payroll differences that, you, that you've uncovered and discovered between how payroll operates in the UK and how payroll operates in the USA, and more importantly, how people in the USA have really been responding to this pandemic from a payroll perspective as well. Well, I think uh, the furloughs that the UK has done was far better done than in the USA. I don't. I, I think the US has, has legislatively not handled the pandemic as well as it could have. But that's, in my opinion, the government in the USA hasn't been working that well for a, a, quite a long time. I'm, uh, I, I'm not uh, actually, I'm literally not allowed to be involved in partisan politics. It's against my religion. And I think in the USA, we're stymied by partisan politics. It's very hard to get anything done. And so we're so busy arguing. And I think you have some of that in the UK as well. But you seem a little bit better able to get things done quickly. Um, our government is, in some ways, has come to a standstill with all the fighting. And so we haven't handled the pandemic as well as we could have. It's not terrible, but, you know, it's, it's everything is partisan here. And so I'm much more about solving a problem. Here's the problem. Let's solve it. You may have a different opinion than I have. Let's work together. Let's figure out a solution, even if you think a little bit differently, and especially if you think a little differently than I do, because from our differing opinions, we'll get truth. So I think the UK has done a better job handling the pandemic. I think that's definitely helped pay escape. Uh, I was very fortunate in the USA that uh, Paylocity came into this uh, pandemic doing extremely well. Now, we did eventually get some legislation, so that did help us. But 
payroll services, I think, on average, have been hit a little harder in the USA. Paylocity was doing extremely well. And so we're going to get hit, but we're, you know, there's no danger to the company. And the company, it's basically a company that was extremely strong going in, being a little weaker than extremely strong. But, you know, still, in fact, in the long run, it will probably be better because some of our weaker competitors will actually not be around. There's some differences in, in, in the UK and Paylocity, I think, uh, in, in the USA. I think the USA is a little bit more technologically ahead of the UK particularly in the payroll industry. So I can say that Paylocity was over 50% remote going into this. Payescape was not. And so what's wonderful is Payescape was able to move very quickly into going remote, and we had to make a few changes. Again, this uh, acquisition of Payrun.io is going to help us tremendously in terms of being, right now our front end is web-based, but our processing engine is not. In the long run, probably in the next few months, both of them will be web-based, and that will make a tremendous difference for us. In the case of Paylocity, everything is web-based, and so it's very easy for people to work from anywhere. That's really interesting. You've touched upon a couple of things there that I've seen. I was out at the APA annual congress last year in the States, and I think one thing that really hit home for me there when you talk about the USA being slightly ahead of the UK in certain elements, one was the pay and demand element, which really has only just started to trickle into the UK now. It's been taken on with with some uh, excitement over here in the UK. But of course, that's an example of a, a function uh, and functionality that's been available in the US for a lot longer and is much more normal as a, as a service than it is here in the UK at the moment. Are there other kinds of um, advancements in the way that people are paid in the USA that haven't yet translated to the UK that you can see coming and affecting us in the future? Yes. Um, so if you look at all the big payroll services in, in the States, all of them have an integrated single payroll and HR are one system. They're just different modules in one system. In the UK, they tend to be a little bit more separated. Um, and I think that's going to change. I think that payroll and HR should get close together and time and attendance as well. In the UK, I, I would say the UK in some ways is actually very similar to how we sold payroll in the States 20 years ago. Um, and and not, that's not an insult to the UK. That's just where it's at. But it's interesting. In one area, the UK is ahead. And that is uh, UK has fewer printed pay slips, which I found interesting. So the United States uh, still has a lot of paper pay slips. We're, we're moving on that. But I would say the UK, at least uh, as of six years ago when I started, was a little bit ahead of the United States. I actually, and, and where my knowledge is slipping a little bit is I haven't been active in the day-to-day at Paylocity for several years, so it may be possible that's changing. But when I first came to the UK, that was one thing where I was surprised because the United States overall was ahead. And that's just, I think what happens is you get strengths and weaknesses in, every, in everything and everywhere, that you'll be ahead in one area and behind in another. I think we're seeing some of those developments in the UK now in terms of the modules between HR and payroll being very closely aligned. Um, one, I did a talk uh, recently for the Charles Institute of Payroll Professionals here in the UK about the future of payroll. And one thing that I'm foreseeing is that roles are going to become a lot more hybrid in the future, where payroll professionals are going to need to have more exposure to HR processes and reward processes and so on and so forth. And I think that's something that, as you say, the USA are a little bit ahead of us again in terms of the, their hybrid, the hybrid nature of the roles. But it's exciting to know that maybe we were slightly ahead on the uh, paper pay slip element side of things. That's something I, d- I wasn't aware of. So that's, uh, that's exciting. We'll, we'll, we'll take that one uh, while we can. Now, one thing I'm really, really interested to get to grips with and something I know my listeners will be 
dying to hear more about, which is advice in relation to those that really want to find an entrepreneurial journey within the payroll profession. Now, I do a lot of talks at local schools talking about payroll as a career choice, and it does sometimes feel like a little bit of a battle to convince the youngsters in the UK, certainly, that payroll is a genuine career choice for entrepreneurs and for people that really want a really great career trajectory through a profession that doesn't have to end up in payroll management. It can end up in payroll sales, payroll training, payroll implementation, and many, many other roles in between. So I would love to know from someone as successful as yourself, Steve, what advice you could give to the young entrepreneurs that may be listening to this podcast. Well, I'll give a couple pieces of advice. Number one, so I wouldn't necessarily say go into payroll, go into something you love, but there can only be so many video game designers. Sure, sure. I see that you know there's there seems to be a preponderance of certain things that young people want to do. Uh, what makes payroll a great profession, as you mentioned, is its resiliency. Uh, it's it's fairly recession proof. Um, I like selling, and I, I started out in sales in, in this industry. And what's nice is it's a typically uh, in business hours. It's business to business selling to me uh, is far better because you get your nights and weekends to yourself. And I think it's a relatively professional sale. You know, it's it's a sale where people will treat you with some respect. I think uh, it's a sale. It's a, in terms of a sales job, uh, it's a sales job where you can make a good living. And I think in this case, uh, I think there'll be a lot of forward changes in the UK in terms of payroll and HR. And so, if you look at that as an industry where an industry is going to have some changes, that's going to give some opportunities both for salespeople and people in operations and entrepreneurs. So if you have a changing industry, an industry that needs to be disrupted, which I believe the UK payroll industry, I believe Payscape is going to, over the next few years, be a huge disruptor. In it's We're starting to be already, but I think that, we're like I said, we're literally just at the starting line of where we're going to go. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you, if four or five years from now, we're 10 times the size we are now. And I, in fact, I would be surprised if we're not. To be honest. Well, we've certainly, I've certainly been seeing great, great things about Payscape in the industry for sure. And I do, I do a lot of work uh, closely with some of the, uh, uh, with Adrian in particular at Payscape, and we've been hearing great, great reports from uh, from from clients and 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 the feedback we, you know, as a recruiter, we get feedback from managers across the UK, across all sectors, and the feedback we've received so far has been excellent. So it's exciting to see the, you know, how this will grow now that you've got the new acquisition as well. Well, what Payrun.io will do for Payscape is it's going to probably, in my estimation. It's going to make us three times as efficient on the back end, which will free up our service people. It will make us more profitable. It'll free up our service people. Uh, actually, it'll make it'll make us better and more profitable because right now we do manual checks on certain things, and all of that will be automated with with Payrun.io. Our payroll processing right now we process each payroll individually. We'll be able to do it automatically. So if you can take a repetitive job and take it out of a person's hands, they're freed up to do higher level work. And so our people have been very well trained to answer questions. I'd rather have them doing that and helping our clients than doing repetitive tasks. And that links in perfectly with while the future of payroll is moving with uh, with automation coming into the marketplace. You know, a lot of payroll professionals worried about their, their roles for the future. But the reality is, if we can automate those tasks and that contributes to 
company growth and you're talking about significant expansion at Payscape to just to begin with well expansion always brings new jobs and of course if we get rid of the task orientated roles then we can get the payroll professionals really focus on employee experience customer experience and strategy and i think they're the areas where payroll professionals can really excel as well so i'm really excited to see the future of payroll develop and evolve and i don't think people should be scared about it i think we should really embrace it and adapt and um, and see see what times we've got coming cuz i think they're going to be exciting ones well, if you look at the states as an example, I mean, you'd think that there'd be fewer payroll and HR people because we're so much, you know, let's say so much more advanced. But actually what's happened is the breadth of things that you can do in payroll and HR has changed. And as you said, it's more strategic. So those are the two things. If you look at payroll and HR in the states 20 years ago, it was much more of a, a manual task. It wasn't, it was an operational task, not strategic. Now HR is viewed as much more strategic and the tools that HR people are using are more strategic. If you really think about a company, uh, most companies' greatest resource is its human resource, its employees. And so we should be, as employers and entrepreneurs, uh, we should be doing everything we can to maximize that resource. And yet we don't. And, and, and frankly, we don't necessarily have the tools. One thing in, in the States, Paylocity I'll just go back and, and date myself. I got in the payroll industry in, in 1989. I was young then. I, I was only three. No, I, actually, I was 23. Um, and uh, at that time, we had these huge mainframes. All the pay, in, in the payroll industry, all the data resided with the payroll service, and people would get these very large uh, computer paper-sized reports that would be printed. And that would be the only access they had to the payroll data. In the 90s, uh, we did PCs and PC input, and now the data started residing at the client side, and they could run their own reports. In the 2000s, in the next decade, everything started going to the employees. So the employees had self-service, and the employees could then see all the data. And so now what's happening in this decade, and, and well, what's happened in the next decade, is it's you get feedback more from the employees. And I think that's going to continue to grow in this decade and in the, because we're now in a new decade. I forgot with 2020. But with this decade, I see, um, uh, I see that employee feedback is going to go back. So we, with Paylocity, with our self-service products, now you're getting a lot of data coming back from the employees. And we actually have a new product called Community at Paylocity, where employees can actually, it's, it's essentially Facebook at work. We built Facebook into our own system. And what's beautiful about that, there's a product called Facebook at work. And the problem is you have to maintain that structure. So if you're a company with a few hundred employees, you have to maintain your, your structure in two different systems, in your HR system and in Facebook. Whereas with our product, it's built right in. So you don't have to enter two products and you also don't have to worry about setting it up and maintaining it, which is a lot of work to maintain the employee structure in, in a separate system. And so but what's happening with that product is you're getting a lot. Now you're getting essentially what we've done is we've we've spread a very hierarchical system where only the payroll person only had a limited amount of data to now a lot of data is available to everybody. And now what we're doing is we're allowing, you know, and we use we use community very heavily at Paylocity. If you can think about during a pandemic, you now have a, a system with videos and, you know, think of like Facebook where we can use this actual tool to unite our company at a time when it's a lot harder to have unity. Great summary as well of uh, how payroll has changed over the decades. Uh, I haven't been there through all of those decades, but I can certainly uh, 
uh, understand some of those changes. And it's a, it's a really good uh, overall summary from someone who's been in there and uh, and, and seen the changes uh, in real time. Now, of course, we're recording this in the midst of uh, a huge great worldwide pandemic, which is COVID-19. For those that know me, I like to always focus on the positives and the negatives of reports enough in the media without without the need for me to do that again here. But what I would like to do, if I may, Steve, is just, I'm aware that you yourself have said it's important to remember the bright side to what's happening at the moment, which is showing how interconnected we all are and how we all must rely on each other and work together to really fight it. I wonder if you could tell me more about your view on the current pandemic and how it's affected you personally or, or your businesses. Well, I'm in several businesses. I'm also in the movie business. All my businesses, thank God, are doing well. PayEscape is doing very well through the pandemic. We were growing going into it. Same thing with Paylocity. We're growing and we're still growing. We're not, which is which is much better than some of our competition. The movie business, we had incredibly good news last week. So I bought into a movie company. I actually started a movie company about six months ago, we signed the paperwork. And within days, we'd signed uh, a, a deal with Warner Brothers to produce a movie called Clouds. And then we just took that movie and sold it to Disney, which is really groundbreaking, because it's the first time that, that Disney has ever bought uh, a movie from another producer. And so we're they're very excited about our movie. We're very excited about it. We also just uh, announced last week a contest six feet apart for filmmakers all over the United States. I don't think it's worldwide. Filmmakers were, were offering $50,000 prizes to a handful of uh, young filmmakers to make their own films during COVID. And so we're doing some really innovative things. The movie business is, to me is, is, I probably picked the worst time to get in it, you know, on paper because they're closing down the theaters, but I'm actually making money. And most importantly, um, my reason for getting into the movie business was to make content that's very positive. We are in the process of getting uh, launching a show called Little Mosque on the Prairie. It's a remake of a Canadian show, which was very popular. And it will be a really groundbreaking show for Muslims. For me, uh, one of my goals in life is to um, really encourage unity among all things and break down all the barriers of prejudice. That's really um, both uh, my partner, Justin Baldoni, who's uh, well known, in, in at least in the States, for his show called Jane the Virgin. He's an actor. He's also a director. He actually made a film last year called Five Feet Apart, which I can't believe he made that film a year before COVID. Did you know he made that film? I didn't. I didn't. No, I didn't come across that. I'm going to have to check it out. It's about uh, two people who have cystic fibrosis, young people that fall in love and uh, can't get within uh, six feet of each other. But they take a foot back, so they call the movie Five Feet Apart. It's an amazingly timely movie. It's actually showing uh, on uh, cable right now. You can probably find it. But anyway, so Justin and I are both Baha'is, Baha'i faith, and we are very much both into spreading unity, breaking down prejudices like racism, sexism, nationalism, religious prejudice. And this film is a vehicle to do it. We're really trying to spread, uh, as you talk, taking the high road, we're really trying to not, we would never make a film that was solely about, let's say, gratuitous sex or violence. Our, our films have a meaning, have a purpose. Uh, in the case of Clouds, it's about Zach Sobiak, who was dying of cancer. He did die. It's a true story. But he made a uh, uh, made this beautiful song called Clouds, which went to number one on iTunes. So it's a celebratory story, and it's a, it's a story about the spirit uh, really triumphing, which is really the essence of all the stories we're going to tell. 
Well, it's 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 a huge credit to you that you've been able to support films uh, like Clouds, which I know are very much featuring messages about hope, faith, and triumph in the face of adversity. Of course, we're in that face at the minute with the uh, with this pandemic. And um, you you won't know this, Steve, but I my background is theatre. Uh, my wife studied at drama school, which is where we met. Um, and most of my friends are either actors or directors in and around the West End. And I, I know personally from, from their stories how much the, the theatre industry has been hit by this pandemic. So to hear positive stories like you've just mentioned there are really, really great to hear because those people working in those sectors are really finding it tough right now. And it's been quite it's been quite destructive um, and people have had to try and stay positive in terms of how they pivot to make sure they can continue to work if you're an actor or director, certainly in London. I'm sorry to hear that because I've been to London theater and it's so wonderfully done. So I'll say a little prayer for your friends because that's that's really a wonderful part of London. So tell tell your friends to keep their chins up. I think people will come back. That's such a in London. London it will not be London without theater. So hopefully it will come back sooner rather than later. I agree as well with that. London would not be London without the theatre. And it's great to hear a little bit more about your story. Of course, you are a filmmaker yourself as well. And you actually are, you know, one, uh, have won awards for some of your own uh, documentaries. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, your own filmmaking experience. Um, I know that the, the, the film that I'm referring to is called The Gate, which was a groundbreaking documentary about the founding of the, the Baha'i faith. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your experience both in filmmaking and, of course, your journey, which I know a little bit about because we spoke a little bit off air before this point, but um, about the Baha'i faith for you. So I, I was raised Jewish and uh, I married to a Catholic woman and I had ended up studying Christianity for many years. I never became a Christian. And in my 40s, I began studying the Baha'i faith. And I love the idea with the Baha'i faith that no religion is wrong. The Baha'is Baha like me embrace the truth of all religions. And instead of religion becoming a battlefield, which it too often becomes, it's really, we believe that all religions at their heart are of a force of unity. And it's just mis that religion has been misunderstood. So in my 40s, I really started becoming very interested. A friend of mine uh, who I ran with is a Baha'i, and he and his wife introduced me to the faith. And I decided one day to become a Baha'i. So I ran home to my wife and I said, I'm a Baha'i now. And she said, no, you're not. Uh, you have to wait till after the kid bar mitzvah. You're the Jewish one. We're raising the kids Jewish, and you have to wait another two and a half years. So I was busy waiting uh, for my kids to have their bar mitzvah. Uh, when uh, my company went public, Paylocity went public, we became, we were wealthy, we became even wealthier. And uh, we started doing philanthropy. I called up a gentleman by the name of Bill Strickland, and, and we wanted to build a center on the west side of Chicago. Uh, and it's very unfortunate. It's tragic that Chicago is a very segregated area. And for people of color, Chicago has not always been a very friendly place. And I wanted to do something about that. So we built, we agreed to build the center on the west side of Chicago. And about five conversations in, Bill says to me, I want to um, talk to you about building the center in Akko, Israel. I'm talking to these Jewish philanthropists. And he had no idea that I had anything to do with the Baha'i faith or that the Baha'i faith had anything to do with Akko. But Akko just happens to be the holiest place in the world for Baha'is. So we end up going to Akko. In September of 2014, I walked into the shrine of Baha'u'llah. One person came out another. I couldn't talk about anything but the Baha'i faith for about a year and or two and um, ended up becoming a Baha'i about six months, less than six months later. And about three days after I became a Baha'i, I emailed a friend of mine in the payroll business and he's a Baha'i. And I said, I'm a Baha'i now. And he, he's, he's actually been a Baha'i his whole life. His father was actually killed for being a Baha'i uh, in Iran. And 
he said, I, I told him, I just want to retire now and I'm just going to teach the Baha'i faith. And he said, well, you could do that. Um, and you could maybe reach hundreds of people or you could make a movie and reach millions of people. Less than an hour later, I get an email from a movie producer by the name of Peter Samuelson, who's uh, he's made several movies. His most famous movie, which you may not have heard of if, if you're a little younger, is called The Revenge of the Nerds. It was very popular here in the States. And uh, anyway, I say Peter, um, Peter was actually emailing me about philanthropy, which we did. We do a lot of philanthropy, my wife and I, we're helping foster kids. And I ended up flying out to Los Angeles the next week, met with Peter. He said, yeah, why don't you go ahead and make that movie? So I, I, um, we, I had several signs along the way. And so even though I'd never made a movie and I'd been a Baha'i for all of three days when this process started, I went off to make this movie, The Gate. And so The, the Gate is about the Bob. Um, in 1844, there was this huge expectation all around the world that a, a messenger was going to come. Jews were expecting the Messiah. Christians were expecting the return of Christ in, in many different countries. In Germany, in France, there were 700 ministers in England, 300 ministers in America, in Switzerland, in Holland, in Sweden. All over the world, there was these uh, expectations in the 1840s of the return of Jesus Christ. Um, and then there was Muslim expectations the exact same time, uh, particularly in Persia, of the promised one of Islam, in their case, in Shia Islam, the 12th Imam. And so all these expectations happen. The Jews, um, of course, don't see the Messiah. The Christians all over the world experienced what was in America was called the Great Disappointment on October 23rd, 1844, when a man uh, named William Miller had 100,000 followers. When Jesus Christ failed to materialize, they, they weren't raptured up to heaven and the world didn't end. Um, there were expectations like that all over the world that ended similarly. But in, in Iran, in Persia, what's, what's now called Iran, they actually found the 12th Imam, and that was the Bab. Um, most of Persia was waiting for a thousand-year-old man to come out of hiding, which, of course, was never going to happen. And there's, now they're waiting for an almost 1,200-year-old man to come out of hiding, and that also is never going to happen. That's the Ayatollahs talking about that. But there was a group called the Shakis, and they weren't a small group. There was tens of thousands of them. And they were expecting a young man to come basically in the spirit of the 12th Imam. And that's what the Bob did. So the Bob said, yes, I'm the 12th Imam. He, he came and, and he got over 100,000 followers in Persia. It was an, it's an incredible story. They basically did everything they could to stop it. They, they jailed him twice in remote jails. Both jailers become, become believers. They sent the number one religious scholar in Persia to kill him with a sword. He became a believer. They couldn't put this down. The, the mullahs of Persia were desperate. To this day, 175 later, 175 years later, they are desperate. When you say Baha'i, they get scared because they know, honestly, when you're, when you're playing chess against God, you're never going to win. And uh, mark my words, everyone will see that over the next few years. The mullahs of Persia were desperately scared to put this down because if, if he was who he said he was, their own uh, prophecy said that as soon as the 12th Imam comes, they have to give up their power. And they didn't want to do that. So they jailed him and they eventually martyred him. And actually, that's one of the highlights in the film. They go to kill him. They tie him up in a public square in front of thousands of people. They get a regiment and they shoot him 750 times with rifles. Now, before they do this, he says, you can't kill me. I'm not ready to go. I'm not done with my mission. When the smoke had cleared, he was uh, tied up with a follower. His follower was there unharmed. The ropes had been shot through and the bob had simply disappeared. An incredibly dramatic moment that actually happened. We have many accounts of it. And they eventually found him after a friend search back in his cell. And they, he says, oh, I finished my mission now. Now you can kill me. He was talking to a secretary. And so 
he, um, they take him and they tie him up a second time. The, the leader of the first regiment pulled his entire regiment. It was a Christian regiment, and they were replaced by a Muslim regiment. And that regiment shot and killed the Bob and Anis, his follower. And they, and they killed, as I mentioned, they, they killed his followers. They killed over 20,000 of his followers and have been persecuting mercilessly the Baha'is ever since. And it's just, you know, it's well known that Baha'is are incredibly persecuted in, in Iran and, and they, uh, you know, if I personally went to Iran, I would be dead. I can tell you just for making this movie. Wow, I didn't, I didn't know that. And I've got a little bit of experience with the Baha'i uh, high faith, which we mentioned before, where I cycled from um, Ho Chi Minh City to Angkor Wat. And the Baha'i faith is something that um, is quite prevalent in Vietnam and Cambodia, where they have a number of temples. And I found them absolutely fascinating to walk into a temple and to see all the different religions represented was something that I didn't know existed before that trip. And it was... Um, Beautiful temples, simple temples, but actually very much about promoting unity and love and taking the positives from, from each religion. And I, I really like that idea. Obviously, with the persecution in, uh, in Cambodia, and particularly with the Khmer Rouge, the idea that they can still come together and, and, and you know, uh, worship love, the, the principles of love and unity. I think it's very difficult to argue against that in any faith. So uh, that's only my experience of it. But it was um, it was a real uh, profound to uh, experience that I had going to Vietnam and Cambodia to experience it myself. So it's interesting to hear it from someone who is so involved in the in the religion to, to hear about it from from your perspective. So thank you for sharing and, uh, and well done for winning best religious documentary as well. What a fantastic uh, accolade to add to the add to the list. Have you ever asked yourself? How can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Time to find out more about you. You've mentioned in that talk as well um, that you are very involved in philanthropic endeavours, both yourself and your wife and your entire family. You've set up the Julian Grace Foundation, which, of course, is named after your two, uh, after your twins. Um, I believe your wife is on the board of a number of different um, associations as well, which is doing, doing good, which is I've got DePaul University, the heart of the city, a non-profit offers soccer programmes in Lake County and, and many, many others as well. So I would love to hear more about some of you know, why you're so passionate about helping others. And um, in particular, I read, and I don't know if this, is, if this is true, if it is, I'd love to hear more. I read a quote that said that you and Jessica plan to give one billion to charity during your lifetimes, which would be an astonishing and phenomenal achievement, I guess. Uh, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your philanthropic work and, um, you know, and, and your ideals behind that. You know, it's going to be a lot less than the Gates giveaway. They're going to give away a lot more than that, but we're doing our part. I believe that if God, you know, I, I just believe essentially that we're all in this together, that there's one, and this is really my Baha'i faith coming out. We're one human race. That's this, the essence of the Baha'i faith is that we're one human race. And so here I am, I've been given all this money. This money is no good in my hands unless I use it for good. If I don't use this money, you know, if I just put it in my bank account, if I buy a yacht, whatever I do, um, if it's not helping others, the, the money is really 
the, you know, what's the use? I, I, you know, it's, it's good for the yacht maker, I suppose, if I buy a, a $50 million yacht, but it doesn't really help anybody else. And so I think that if we all looked at it, people like me who have the means, and I do have the means um, to give away this money, I want to give it away, not just give it away, but give it away in a very intelligent manner as much as possible. My wife is really dedicated to doing this and, and really lift people up and give people Basically, teach people how to farm, teach people and, and teach people how to fish instead of giving them a fish, teach them how to fish. And in my mind, actually, um, I always say my wife is the philanthropist and I'm the theologian. The reason why I'm so into theology and religion is I believe that our biggest problems are religious. And so I actually spend more time on religion. And I've actually started an, uh, just this year, I've started an arm of my philanthropy that's solely um, on Baha'i inspired um, philanthropy. And so we're basically using the Baha'i faith and its principles and applying them. So we're doing, uh, for example, I'm working with a Baha'i friend to do help smallholder farms in Haiti, one of the poorest countries in, in the Western Hemisphere. So we're going to take these principles of universal love, of, of helping people of all races and nationalities, and we're going to apply this to our philanthropy. And we're going to apply it in a way that not just we're not just going to give them like an example of how a philanthropy gone wrong in Haiti, someone thought it was great to give them T-shirts. So we gave people in Haiti all these free T-shirts. The problem is we killed the native Haitian T-shirt making industry, which actually caused more problems. It's a true story. I'm looking at these things and saying, how can I empower? So we, we work with communities at the community level and say, what do you need? There was a terrible incident. I don't know if you heard about it in the States where uh, a young black man, he was in his 20s, was running uh, in February and he was shot by two men. Yes. Yeah. I did read that. Yeah. And so I've been a runner for 40 years and over 40 years. I called up my friend who's also a runner and we're actually, I'm, I'm very tall. I'm six foot six. He happens to be the same height. He's black. I'm white. And we've talked about our running experiences and he had, he's just had experiences where he's, he's been harassed and, and in some, in one case, almost hurt while running. And this is so what happened to this runner is unfortunately not that uncommon. I said, well, what can I do? So we're going to be working with the Chicago Area Runners Association to put in a whole diversity training program and to really do some long term work to unite the running company, uh, running the running community here. Those are the kind of things I want to do is I want to take these principles of racial amity and racial unity, which the United States really needs. And instead of fighting any problem with hatred and division, meet it with love and unity. And so that's if you look at our philanthropy, I believe if we did this on a worldwide basis, we would have a society which is so productive and verdant and enlightened that you wouldn't even be able to recognize it. It's a scientific fact, isn't it, that you get, you know, in terms of endorphins, we get a greater endorphin rush from giving than we do receiving. Um, and that's uh, that, that's due to, that's you know down to chemicals in the brain. But uh, I agree, we could definitely do more to provide for those. That are that are struggling. Um, I I try and do a lot myself. Actually, we've just uh, my daughter's just been raising money for the NHS over here in the UK by doing portraits uh, and selling them off for five pounds a piece. She had a, a modest target of raising three hundred pounds, and she's raised uh, over three hundred percent of her target with just over a thousand pounds to the NHS. Just just painting people uh, for five pounds a time. But um, it's about this. If as, as you say, if everyone contributes, if everyone takes a stand, and you know, it's it's that it's. It's the greater the number, the greater the good we can bring. So, um, and it's, it's some of the work you've been doing is, is truly phenomenal. And I will def I will be putting some links in the episode notes. So, for those listening to this who want to find out more about some of Steve's work, 
I definitely advise you take a look. Um, I'll also put some links to his videos as well. But um, some of the work is is is, is absolutely fantastic, and uh, I can do nothing but praise it and, and take my hat off to to you, Steve, and the way that you've uh, approached life and the way that you both yourself, your wife, and and your twins, who I know have their own office in the foundation, um, have been contributing to helping others. It's um, it's been absolutely phenomenal. I just thought of one story for your listeners about uh, the Baha'i faith and and the UK, and it's actually a very interesting story. Do you have a second for it? Yeah, please share. Please do. Okay, so Baha'u'llah, when, when he was alive back in the late 1800s, around 1870, he wrote, in, and he wrote in very strong terms to every king and queen that was in power at that point in time. He wrote to the Shah, he wrote to the Sultan, he wrote to the Tsar, the Kaiser, Napoleon III, then the most powerful man in Europe. He wrote to Queen Victoria, and he wrote to all of them saying basically that he was the promised one of all faiths and that they... Uh, I mean, these are very powerful kings. And he was a prisoner in the worst prison city in the Ottoman Empire at the time. And he said, you know, basically that they had to have fealty to him, that basically he was in charge and that they were doing things wrong. They were overtaxing their people and doing too much war. He basically he, he was he, he really they were very authoritative, loving, but authoritative things, almost like your father uh, berating a child. Um, and he wrote these to all the kings and queens of that day. And said, look, if you follow me, um, you'll have all the power in the world, but you have to do it in God's, you know, fashion, doing the things I was talking about with, you know, basically spreading love and unity rather than fighting. Uh, None of the kings responded positively. Uh, Napoleon reportedly threw his letter over his shoulder and um, Baha'u'llah sent a second letter berating him for that and telling him he would lose his power. And Napoleon III quickly did lose his power, which was very surprising. But one monarch, only one answered relatively well. And he, he said to Queen Victoria, he said, good for you that you got rid of slavery and good for you that you put in parliament. And she responded back and she said, if this is of God, it will stand. And if it's not of God, it can do no harm. And if you notice all those other kings, the Kaiser, the Shah, the Sultan, uh, the Tsar, Napoleon III, all of them have been dethroned a long time ago. But Queen Victoria stayed on the throne, and her descendants to this day are on the throne. Um, And her granddaughter was the Queen of Romania, Queen Marie. And she actually became the first monarch to become a Baha'i. And interestingly enough, tying it to my my film, on the day my film debuted in 2018, Meghan Merkle, there was a made-for-TV movie that debuted that same day. And uh, actually, the person playing her was a Baha'i friend of mine. Small world. Which is interesting. Small when you break it down. It's a small world. I, I think it's a very small world, and I think we're all one. And even though I don't have a lovely English accent, which I'd love to have, I do my best to help. And uh, I think that's all we should all do. And, you know, the five pounds at a time that your daughter's doing are just as meaningful as maybe if I give 500 pounds. In fact, the, the sacrifice we make to give is, is far more important. Than anything else, and I think we all should be doing that together. Well, that's, well, that's a great way to uh, to kind of bring this podcast around full circle. So, and um, thank you so much for sharing some of those uh, amazing stories with me, Steve, and, and certainly for the payroll community at the moment. I know that they uh, they've almost been at breaking point. They certainly, having here in the UK, one message that I'm trying to give the payroll community at the moment is to take care of their own mental health because if you you need to look after yourself before you can help others and. Um, I think at the minute there are some payroll professionals in the UK who are at breaking point, who are working 70, 80, 90 
80 hours a week, including weekends without a break, to make sure that the UK continues to get paid. With that in mind, I'd just like to finish with one final question, if I may, which is how do you see the future for the world of payroll? And what message would you give to those payroll professionals across the world at the moment who, in light of mental health issues on the rise as well, what would message you give to them to make sure they look after themselves during this time of a of pandemic? Well, if you look at the pandemic, the pandemic is insane. You know, it's it's a tragic force, but it's a cleansing force. I believe it's from a cleansing force from God. And what it's doing, like here in the states, it's exposed all these problems we already had. For example, the meatpacking plants that we have here in the United States, which have terrible conditions for the workers, have been a problem for the pandemic, but they were a problem before. The pandemic just merely exposed them. The pandemic has exposed physical problems. You know, where the United States is a little bit worse, I believe, than the UK, but we're overweight. The things that were already wrong with us, the pandemic exploits. And so I would say that we should, number one, take a little time, everyone should, every day, for spiritual wellness. I have a, a very, I'm very fond of saying this, that we would never starve ourselves and not eat. Why would we starve ourselves spiritually? Because if we do that, we'll then, we'll, we'll then consume the spiritual food that is probably not good for us, maybe too much alcohol or too much drugs or, or other things that might not be good for us, instead of really looking at the positive. So fill your soul every day with something positive, whether it's just being kind to somebody, whether it's praying or a little bit of meditation is wonderful. You know, find a way to fill your soul, number one. Number two, um, we really should be looking at wellness. It's a crisis, and this pandemic, um, if you really look at the, the, the numbers in the pandemic, if we were a society that had put wellness first, the numbers would be far better in both the U.S. and the U.K., everywhere, actually. So I, I think we need to take care of our spiritual wellness, and then we have to realize that this, will, this too will pass. We'll, you know, we'll, most of us will survive. And we'll make it through. We'll be a little chastened, uh, but we should learn from it. So there's always a lesson in everything. And I think the lesson on this one, the biggest lesson, of course, this is my Baha'i coming out, is that we're one human family, that this affects all of us, whether we're rich or poor. The fact that, that I'm a billionaire doesn't protect me from the pandemic. Maybe a little bit because I, you know, my, I might be a little bit more isolated or it might be easier for me to, to do social distancing. But this pandemic hits the rich, the poor, the black, the white, all religions. The pandemic doesn't ask any of those things. And I think that we should really, any solution we have for this pandemic should be a we solution. And I love, I don't know if you saw what Gordon Brown proposed a couple months ago. He proposed that we do a world parliament or something along those lines to deal with the pandemic, which I think is brilliant. As a Baha'i, I believe that if you're going to have a global civilization, you need global governance. And so I think that he's exactly right, that we have to look at this as a global problem. And we have so many global problems, and yet we really have such weak global governance. We need to really think about that. And if we had strong global governance in place going into this pandemic, it would have been stopped in its tracks. The problem is we're fractured. And when you're fractured, uh, the Bible says that a house uh, divided against itself can't stand. And, and we need to look at that. And say, how are we going to work together as a world civilization? Because we are. If we do that, we will be able to solve these problems going forward. Well, I think that is a 
perfect way to end what has been a fascinating conversation. Steve, I thank you so much for your time to join me today. It's been uh, it's been fascinating. It's been engaging. I've learned a lot. I've taken lots of notes, um, both on air and off air as well. So thank you ever so much for giving your time to what has been a, a brilliant episode of the Paywall Podcast. I will, of course, put links to many of the items we've discussed on this podcast in the episode notes, including links to Steve's businesses, which includes Pay Escape in the UK. But I know we've got a global audience. So for those in the US and beyond, I'll put links to Blue Marble Payroll and Paylocity as well. Uh, please do check out the films. Again, I'll put the links in the episode notes to make it nice and easy for you guys. Please go straight to the episode notes, click on those links and find out a little bit more. For now, I just want to say a huge, huge thank you, Steve Sowitz, for joining me today on the Payroll Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you again, Payroll Podcast listeners, for your continued support for this show. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Please remember to like it, share it and subscribe to it if you haven't already. And if you get a spare moment, please just click on the review button, give it five stars and let the community know this is a podcast worth listening to. Anyway, all the best. Look after yourselves and each other in this crisis. And I look forward to bringing you a new episode of the Payroll Podcast real soon. Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.